This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. I'm Stevie Mines, Hofstra Radio Class of 1973. We're not here to talk about me. First, let me thank Brian McKinley for giving up his chair for this episode and for all his good work on the audio yearbook. I've listened to dozens of episodes, and one of the things that strikes me is that so many of us over the decades have had the same or similar experiences. I'm here to talk about Kev Riley, Hostra Radio Class of 1974. Kevin left us in 2010, but lately I've been hearing him over and over and over asking, where's my audio yearbook? When are they going to do my audio yearbook? In 2009, I did a documentary for the 50 Project. I sat down with Kevin and some vintage microphones for over an hour. At the time, I was miffed that a lot of what we recorded was unusable for that first project. But fortunately, I never throw anything away. During our wide-ranging conversation, Kevin posited an interesting question. The question is, where are all those tapes with all those labels on the edges of them? that uh, we made in the 70s, do they even exist anymore? That's actually two questions. Kevin left Hempstead with a box of quarter-inch tapes in 1974. He took that box from Seaford to Tucson, Arizona, to Portland, Oregon, to Seattle, to Yakima, Washington, to New York City, to Nashville, and finally to Huntington, a place where I really wanted to live for as long as I had known him. As it happened, when Kevin left us, I inherited that box of tapes. So, hello, Kevin. Welcome to your audio yearbook. Hello. Is this the story of my life, or is this the story of my career at Hofstra Radio? Kevin, this is the story of your career at Hofstra Radio. This is only going to hurt a little bit. Kevin was raised in Midwood, Brooklyn, where he attended Catholic school. I don't think he got out much during his high school years, but he spent a lot of time learning about radio. He definitely grew up in a household where radio was important. The first time my mother heard me on the radio, she ran out into the street in Brooklyn, in the Midwood section of Brooklyn, with a transistor radio in her hand saying, my son's on the radio, my son's on the radio. And she didn't get locked up. Kevin told me that one of the things he shared with his father was their love of Bob and Ray. Kevin was clearly intent on doing radio, and at Hostra, doing radio is what he did. One of the reasons Kevin chose Hostra was because he was a student at New College. I never knew what that was other than it was some sort of special program for effete snobs and hippies. So it was probably appropriate that we had given Kevin the nickname, The Hippie. The moniker was also because he had beautiful, long, red hair. Kevin, tell us about when you first came to WVHC. My first day on campus as a freshman, I came down to the radio station to audition, and Jeffrey Krause handed me some uh, news wire copy, and I read it uh, sufficiently well to his liking, and he said, I'm putting you on the air tonight. At 10 o'clock, here are the headlines from WVAC News, Kev Riley reporting. 
The Pro Arte Symphony Orchestra will perform the five concerts of its 1970-1971 season at a new location, the new CW Post College Auditorium built last year. The Post Auditorium has more than twice the capacity of the Hofstra Playhouse, former home of the orchestra. Boston police have questioned William Gilday following his arrest in Worcester, Massachusetts earlier today. Gilday is suspected of being part of a gang of so-called revolutionaries wanted in connection with the killing of a Boston policeman during a $26,000 bank robbery last week. Senate and House negotiators have brought in a military aid for Israel measure to the extent that it now allows the president to sell Israel any quantity of virtually any non-nuclear weapons. 31 passengers of a Transworld Airlines jetliner and other commercial jets hijacked three weeks ago to Jordan by Palestinian guerrillas returned to New York tonight and were reunited jubilantly with relatives and friends at Kennedy Airport. President Nasser of Egypt died at his suburban Cairo home today of a heart attack at 52 years of age. President Nixon has called for calm in the Middle East in the wake of the death of Nasser, and the president now aboard the USS Saratoga has altered the remainder of his European tour. In weather, the temperature outside the WVAT studios is 58 degrees and it is clearing. The barometric pressure is 29.94 and is steady. The forecast for tonight calls for clearing skies and cool temperatures with lows from 40 to 45 degrees. Winds are from the west-northwesterly at 5 to 10 miles per hour. And tomorrow, Tuesday, will be sunny and cool with highs in the mid-60s. The long-range forecast for Wednesday calls for fair and warmer weather with highs in the upper 60s. There are no small craft warnings at the present, and once again the temperature outside the WVAT studios is 58 degrees, and this is Kev Riley reporting. Who doesn't remember where they were when they learned Gamal Abdel Nasser died? In the interest of full disclosure, please note that that was not the first newscast that Kevin did. The tape is labeled... One of Kev's first newscasts, September 28, 1970. On the air and on tape labels, Kevin was known as Kev Riley. He used that name throughout his 35-year career in radio and television, where he did a plethora of jobs on and off the air. Kevin, Brian always asks people about the titles they held at the radio station. In the absence of actual salaries, because nobody was paid back then, a title went a long way toward making you feel like what you were doing at the radio station was worthwhile. I can't remember how many titles I had over the, the four plus years. I, I think my first title was News Operations Director. I remember planning the uh, election coverage uh, most years I worked at the radio station. That was a logistical uh, challenge. And uh, was I classical music director at one point? You were. What did the station look like when you auditioned? We were in the basement of the little theater on campus. And it was a little theater. And if you uh, had to walk around to the back of the building and happened to see a wrought iron uh, railing leading down to the basement, that would be your first indication that there might be a radio station contained therein. You'd walk in uh, and walk through a, a rabbit warren of narrow hallways into a studio about the size of your kitchen table. And uh, I believe one wall was lined with record albums, if I'm not mistaken. One wall. One wall. 
and then the rest had uh, acoustical uh, ceiling tile stapled to the walls as some kind of uh, sound absorption. There was a, a double-paned tilted glass leading into the uh, control room on the widest wall in the studio, and uh, there was a table with a couple of microphones on it, and uh, I would sit on the side facing the glass so I could give cues to the engineer when to start the program, when to cut the mic, uh, when to play the break, etc. And uh, it was very small, but remarkably efficient. A lot of the equipment we had was hand-me-down from radio stations in the city where various alumni had worked and had uh, managed to uh, relieve them of some ancient equipment that they were eager to get rid of. We gladly accepted that. Our uh, control board, was it a Gates Diplomat? It was a Gates Diplomat. Came from one of the city stations. Uh, some of our reel-to-reel -reel recorders, some of our microphones came from WMCA when they got rid of uh, announcers and went to music only. But uh, it, it was a very tiny space. Uh, there were a lot of the rooms in that basement area, aside from the large studio, were about the size of a closet. The record library was the size of a closet, not really a walk-in closet, maybe two closets in, uh, in length, a hall closet, shall we say. The record library was also the home of the UPI teletype machine. Ah, teletypes. You remember teletypes. I do remember teletypes. It was the old kind that uh, constantly made the, uh, the ticking noise. It uh, had a uh, plexiglass cover through which you could read what was being typed as it was being uh, sent over the wire. And if you ever had to change the ribbons, it was uh, a task everybody wanted to shift on someone else. Kind of like changing the toner in your office copier these days. You wait for some other sap to do it. Because changing the ribbon on the teletype meant getting out the white gloves that came in the box with the ribbons and pulling out this uh, cloth ribbon impregnated with indelible purple ink. It, it, if you ever got it on your, your hands, it took forever to get off, which is why they gave you a pair of gloves to change them with. Uh, you may recall, or you perhaps will not recall, that the purple ink that the teletypes used was, uh, if, you, if it got alcohol on it, it would disappear. It was alcohol-soluble. I did not know that. And um, it was very common in those years in every radio station to have a bottle of rubbing alcohol because rubbing alcohol was what you used from time to time to clean the residue off the uh, tape recorder record and playback heads. So uh, a common prank, and I don't know how often it was done versus how often it was talked about, a common prank was as somebody was reading the news, you would pour some alcohol on their copy and it would disappear before their eyes. The other prank was to uh, set fire to the bottom of the piece of paper as the announcer was reading it. And uh, I remember once uh, somebody's bright idea of a prank was to squirt Windex in my ears as I was reading the news. I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> it might have been Howard Liberman. Thanks to Jeff Krause, Kevin's broadcast career got off to a quick start. Somewhere over the preceding summer, one of the professors at the college, 
Louis Lomax, a history professor, had died in a car crash. And Jeff Krause suggested that perhaps we might want to do a documentary in tribute to uh, the life of this uh, distinguished black educator. So somehow I hooked up with Elliot Sussels, who was one of the engineers at the station. Uh, and we decided to do the life of Louis Lomax because a lot of the people he worked with were still around. And we were surprised the more we researched his life, uh, how little we knew about him. But he intersected with a lot of famous people in broadcasting. Kevin and Elliot made good use of archival audio to introduce the listener to their subject. While he was writing articles for various magazines, he was assigned by Harper's Magazine to go to Cuba to interview Fidel Castro. After applying for his special passport to go to Cuba, Mr. Lomax was called to the State Department in Washington. He was escorted up to the executive floor and into the imposing oak-paneled executive chamber, where the then Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, wheeled around in his chair to face Louis, who tells us what happened. He looked at me and he said, Mr. Lomax, you're going to Cuba. I said, yes, that's what my ticket says. I'm going. He said, but Mr. Lomax, Cuba is a communist country. I said, I know. I read that in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. He said, but Mr. Lomax, we don't have diplomatic relations with Cuba. I said, I know. It's in the New Republic this week. I read it. And then all of a sudden, this man came down with deep paternal concern. He turned beet red, and he leaned forward, and he put his chin in his cupped hands, and he looked at me, and he said, Mr. Lomax, you're going to Cuba. Cuba is a communist country. We don't have diplomatic relations with Cuba. If you get into trouble in Cuba, we can't protect you. And I said, Mr. Rusk, baby, you can't protect me here. I know you can't protect me in Cuba. Two months into my career at Hofstra Radio, we started doing this documentary, and we got to interview everybody from uh, Percy Sutton, who was the Manhattan Borough President, to Mike Wallace, who at that time was the co-host of 60 Minutes with Harry Reasoner. It was a relatively new show back in 1971. And we uh, went to the CBS broadcast facility on 57th and 10th Avenue, what they used to call the old bottling plant. It used to be a board and milk plant. And sat down in a tiny office with Mike Wallace, whose career at CBS was just really starting at that point. And we brought a big old uh, Ampex recorder with us that was about the size of a suitcase, propped it up on the corner of his relatively small desk and started asking him questions. And at one point, uh, asking him a question about his work with Louis Lomax, he put his hand over the microphone and said, bullshit. I said, <laughs> what? He says, you know, the question you just asked me has no validity, it's bullshit. And I, I realized that here I was, two months of experience in radio under my narrow belt at that time, asking perhaps the greatest inquisitor in broadcast history a question that he felt was insufficiently prepared because I hadn't done the research that he thought Louis Lomax deserved. So I rephrased the question and got the answer. Originally, he was hired as a writer and uh, I think that he was restless in that role. 
Matter of fact, on one occasion, we got into a bit of a hassle just before we went on the air, and he was in the middle of writing a piece and didn't like what I said to him, and so he simply walked out with about 15 minutes to go to airtime. And uh, it was many months. I mean, he quit just before we went on the air. Uh, so that he and I had a slight difference of opinion following that for a period of some time. But then we became friends again. So when we started doing this, this program, we, it was like one of my favorite movies, Citizen Kane or The Great Man, where the more you ask about this uh, guy whose life was suddenly and tragically taken away from us, the more you find that uh, he might not have been the white knight uh, in shining armor that you thought he was. But all this uh, leads up to the fact that we produced this, uh, this program, Louis Lomax, I think it was in two parts, two half hours. And uh, Jeffrey Krauss entered it in a competition, an award competition for the National Association of FM Broadcasters. And we got the honorable mention that year for uh, the documentary. One of the judges called it a jewel of a portrait, a phrase I'll never forget. And lo and behold, uh, they invited us to go to Chicago to pick up this award at the uh, broadcasting convention. So Elliot and I get on a plane, maybe for the first or second times in our lives, fly to Chicago. They put us up in the Palmer House, which is a fancy schmancy hotel, and we get to pick up this award. It was a, it was a, a magnificent experience for someone just starting out in radio. And uh, kind of like Orson Welles, I never got another award like that in more than 30 years in broadcasting. I got mine early, two months in, and uh, it was probably the, the most satisfying work I've ever done and is some of the, the first work I ever did as a broadcast journalist. I um, recall characterizing you as award-winning journalist in the um, WVHC program guide circa 1971 or 1972. You always were given to hyperbole. Well, no, I think that uh, that was absolutely accurate. Well, an award-winning, winner of an award, and an honorable mention award at that. But we'll take it. We covered the biggest demonstration against the Vietnam War in Washington, D.C., back in the early 70s. Uh, I and uh, Todd Schwartz and some other members of the WVHC staff drove down to Washington, D.C., looking for Long Island contingents, Hostra contingents, marching in this huge anti-war demonstration. We found them. We hooked up with them. We interviewed them. We were tear gassed on the steps of the Justice Department building, me standing alongside George Herman of CBS News, who was also tear gassed. The Nixon administration had no tolerance for dissent or the reporters who covered the dissent. So we were all gassed equally, college broadcaster and CBS correspondent. A theme that ran through several audio yearbook episodes was that young college broadcasters had to dress for success. We were nice, uh, I wouldn't say clean cut, but uh, well-behaved uh, uh, young men and women. Uh, some of us, uh, myself included, looked especially scruffy back then. 
I had uh, a mustache and long hair that made me look like the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. And yet, one of my prized possessions from the WVHC era is a photograph of me looking like the cowardly lion, thrusting a WVHC microphone into the face of Senator Ted Kennedy, a photograph taken by Steve Mines. Yes, it was uh, one of my proudest moments. I'll tell you a story about that photograph. Ted Kennedy was coming to Hofstra to conduct a hearing on some health-related issue that escapes me. But we knew he was coming. We knew we would be covering this hearing. And we knew there would be a lot of other media coverage of this hearing. So the night before, I made what was WVHC's first microphone flag, which is to say the uh, piece of metal or plastic on the microphone that has the station's call letters, knowing that it would be photographed in other newspapers that covered the uh, hearings and TV stations. As it was uh, turned out, I think it was on the front page of the Daily News the next day. You did a show on WVHC called On Mike. What that, was that all about? That was essentially a couple of guys sitting around a table talking into microphones. Uh, the very first guest I had on On Mike was uh, Alphonse D'Amato, who at that time was assistant supervisor of the uh, town of Hempstead. He was the supervisor of the town of Hempstead. So we, the first guest was uh, Al D'Amato, who uh, he was always good for a quote. Coincidentally, or, or uh, parenthetically, uh, the announcer who recorded the, the introduction to our show is Dave Levy was Dave Levy. Well, Dave Levy still is. Dave Levy went on to become a uh, congressman from Long Island and now is uh, working in some function in uh, Hempstead Town Hall as an attorney, from what I understand. So uh, he's uh, still around, but uh, he got his start at Hofstra Radio and also at uh, the Times Square store in Hempstead, which is no longer there, where he was the store announcer. He would get on the, uh, the PA system uh, several times during the day to say things like, ladies, in our lingerie department, there's a sale on yada, yada, yada. You may or may not recall that I hosted one episode of On Mike. I have no recollection of that, Your Honor. When you were unable to get to the studio. Oh, that was uh, a frequent problem. Uh, in the summertime, because the show didn't take vacation when we did, uh, I was living back home in Brooklyn and did not have a car. And I would have to try to borrow my sister's car or my mother's car and drive from Brooklyn to Hempstead to do a live show. I think it was at 7.30 on Tuesday nights, something like that. And there was one broadcast I think I missed because I got stuck in traffic. Uh, if I remember correctly, you missed it because some union had left all the bridges on the Belt Parkway in the open position. That's it. It was the bridge tender strike. And they had uh, opened all the bridges in the city and taken the, the operating handles, the keys to the bridge, if you will. They'd taken them with them. So uh, the Belt Parkway, which would have been my usual route to get from Brooklyn to Long Island, was closed off to me. I think it was the broadcast on the day 
that uh, J.I. Rodale, the uh, magazine publisher, died during a taping of the Dick Cavett Show. For some reason, that sticks in my mind that I was listening to that on the radio, you, you, news reports of that, as I was dr trying to drive to Hempstead. Not listening to me, interviewing your guest, having no idea what we were supposed to be talking about? You're presuming that uh, WVHC's signal back then in mono could reach from Hempstead to Brooklyn. Who doesn't remember where they were when J.I. Rodale died? Kevin's show on Mike was one of many public affairs shows on WVHC. There was another show of that era called Rapping with Dean Luiso that Kev didn't remember well. Do you remember rapping with Dean Sal or rapping with Dean <laughs> Luizzo? I have a vague recollection, Your Honor. It was, um, um, you know, if it hadn't been for the black mark that Dean Luizzo put on my permanent record, I'd be a doctor today. What did he do? He put a black mark on my permanent record. And what did you do to uh, incur such wrath? I pissed him off. Ah. You're going to make me play 20 questions. What did you do to piss him off? Um, I believe I, I drove my car where he thought it shouldn't be. Into his parking space? No, I was delivering uh, broadcast equipment to the student center. And you drove up the uh, sidewalk? Yes, correct. In service to the Hofstra radio station? Correct. It wasn't just on a lark, a mischievous prank? No, it was not. And yet... This is where you say something. I'm, I'm trying to think of something whimsical to say. You know, I'm not a radio person anymore, so I don't abhor dead air, as you people call it. I'm perfectly happy pausing and collecting my thoughts before I ask. A real radio person would never use the word abhor. No. Kevin once hosted a show called Classical Music for Those Who Hate Classical Music. He was quite the classical music aficionado. It explains his spot-on Milton Cross imitation. Good afternoon, opera fans. This is Milton Cross with the Metropolitan Opera Broadcast. Do you want to hear about Ellie Sigmeister? Yeah, tell me about Ellie Sigmeister. Ellie Sigmeister was the composer-in-residence at Hofstra. Uh, one of the, the lesser-known American composers of serious music. But uh, quite distinguished. He's no longer with us. He died uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. Flush with the success of our uh, documentary about Louis Lomax, Elliot and I uh, wanted to do something bigger. And so we thought we'd do the, the life story of Ellie Sigmeister, the man and his music. He uh, thankfully had lots of old tapes of performances of his works which had never been heard apart from their original live broadcast in places like Canada and Europe. And uh, we intercut performances from uh, some of these uh, never-before-heard tapes and uh, recordings on lesser-known record labels with uh, commentary by him and interviews with some of his colleagues about him.
The Strange Funeral in Braddock by Ellie Sigmeister. One problem that Ellie Sigmeister shares with other composers is that of making his music heard. The uh, age-old question, I think, for the American composer, I think in Europe it's slightly different, but for the American composer was, how the heck do you get an audience? I mean, who's going who's to listen to this music of yours that you have devoted your blood, sweat, and tears to writing? Who cares about it? How do you write so that you both uh, remain uh, faithful to your own uh, feeling and your own concept and your own values, and yet you make something that means something to some guy out there who perhaps isn't that musically sophisticated? Can you do the two at once? It's difficult, but I think that um, at times I have succeeded in doing it. And he was a very interesting guy. Uh, one of the phrases he used, which I was tempted to use as the title for the documentary, when I asked him, what, what is the creative process behind composing serious music, what we would call classical music? He said, it's a constant search for clarity. And that phrase stuck in my mind ever since. This is 35 years ago. Yeah, I've noticed it says that on your tattoo. A constant search for clarity, yes. I have it tattooed in an intimate place. Uh, I didn't have enough room to write the entire thing. That uh, program we uh, labored long and hard over. It was, uh, I think, a two-hour program. And we entered that in various award competitions, thinking we'd uh, hit one out of the park yet again after the Louis Lomax Award, and got no recognition. We made a lot of friends on campus in interviewing people about Ellie uh, Sigmeister, and uh, made a friend for life of him. He's a, he was a great guy, and uh, I enjoyed his music and enjoyed giving it a wider audience. Kevin was also responsible for a bunch of live classical music programming. We uh, broadcast live concerts of classical music. I and Steve Epstein, who is now a Grammy Award-winning producer for Sony Classical, before that it was Columbia Masterworks Records, we would go to various venues around the island, literally hang the microphones ourselves, and uh, on the night of the concert would actually uh, broadcast and host the coverage. We uh, did the Huntington Symphony Orchestra series of concerts in uh, Huntington High School. We broadcast a concert of the Pro Arte Symphony Orchestra from the CW Post Dome up in uh, Brookville. It was uh, a very interesting uh, series of concerts. We broadcast a, a live chamber music concert from another campus venue. And uh, somewhere after the first or second broadcast, we realized that to order a 15-kilocycle telephone line, this was monophonic, mind you, was a very expensive proposition. So uh, I started trying to find people to underwrite the broadcasts in order to pay for the telephone lines, and we got Sam Goody of the Sam Goody Corporation, which was a chain of record stores, uh, which has long since gone bankrupt and out of business, that uh, Sam Goody himself wrote us a check, I think it was for $1,500, something like that. 
There's a picture of me somewhere holding the check in, I think, the Hofstra Chronicle. And uh, that was, an ex that was I think, our first underwriting announcement on the station. It might have been, you know, broadcast of tonight's live concert by the Huntington Symphony Orchestra is made possible through a grant in aid from Sam Goody Incorporated. Something we haven't touched on yet was Kevin's talent as a voiceover artist. Like Jeff Krause, the kid had a great set of pipes. I recall Jeffrey getting Kev to narrate whole programs. I myself drafted him to voice the opener for my thankfully short-lived music and commentary program. WVHC, in total disregard of its responsibility to broadcast in the public interest, now presents the Gothic Dyspeptic Musical Review. And now here's your laughable, lovable, chuckle-filled host, Stephen J. Mines. Well, uh, hello, is this on? Can you hear me? Hideous, just Good hideous. Oh. They were awful. They were an embarrassment. And yet you emailed me a clip from one of your gothic dyspeptic musical reviews relatively recently, and I laughed hysterically at it because the humor was so spontaneous and right on, and your choice of music was excellent. I, I really enjoyed that show. Uh, that would make you the only one. Well. <laughs> and, well, I did have a fan is Gary from Elmont. That's, that's, that's a whole other discussion. But enough about me. What do you think about me? Tell me about Jeff Krause. Jeff was always an imposing figure. He was physically tall, had a full beard, and if memory serves me, he smoked a pipe, didn't he? He did smoke a pipe. I don't remember him as being a large man or a tall man. He did have a beard. Mm. He was imposing, but I don't think he was physically imposing. Psychologically imposing. Perhaps. He was an intimidating figure to me. He was, uh, what would you call him, the evil genius behind uh, Hofstra Radio? Had a good ear for talent, or I wouldn't be sitting in front of this microphone, because, as I might have mentioned earlier, when I first came to Hofstra, I auditioned for the radio station the very first day on campus. They put me on the air that night reading the news. If he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have a career in broadcasting. Would never have gone into uh, commercial radio and then into television. In our years at WVHC, a lot of us, Kevin included, spent a lot of time wandering around with a tape recorder and microphone. There was actually a program called A Voice for All, and it used Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man as its theme music. That was one of the uh, public affairs shows we did that was designed to give a soapbox to people of various uh, political and social views. And I think it, it's a tribute to the station's mandate, uh, mission, and to Jeff Krause in particular, that we felt like as a community radio station for the Hofstra community, but the larger Hempstead and Long Island community, that we really had a chance to do something different. 
And we were willing to put on abortion advocates and, and uh, First Amendment free speech people and anti-war activists. And we had some great shows. I produced a couple of three of those, I'm sure. In that box of tapes I found, Kevin had labeled one Mineola Peace Rally. And on it was former Democratic Congressman Allard Lowenstein, a prominent anti-war activist. At least one Nassau congressman who's ready to vote for December 31st, 1971, as the deadline for U.S. withdrawal. And there's one Nassau congressman that will vote against all military appropriations that fuel the flames of Vietnam. You have my pledge, and I will vote for peace, but now. Our time here is almost up. Thanks again to Brian McKinley for the use of the hall. Here's something else that Kevin apparently recorded at that Mineola Peace Rally. It's Peter Yarrow. It's only the chorus, but he sings it twice. Take your place on the great Mandela. Sing it with me now. As it moves through your brief moment of time. Win or lose now. You must choose now. And if you lose your hope. That's it, huh? Jeez. Um, Hardly seems worth it. 